This message is presented by Pastor Chuck Wilson. Okay, my name is Chuck Wilson, New Hope Community Church, and we're going to be finishing up Daniel 5 today of our prophetic series. Going through Daniel, going to be in Revelation not too long from now. The title for today, though, is Biblically Correct Equals Politically Incorrect. That's right, Biblically Correct Equals Politically Incorrect. Daniel 5 Verse, starting with verse 17, and we're going to go all the way to the end here, uh, 31. So, the USA is now a post-Christian nation. That's well established. Everybody knows it. No argument anymore. And that means that each pastor in the pulpit has to make a decision. Each true follower of Jesus Christ has a decision to make. Will I be politically correct or biblically correct? Because we can't be both. It's one or the other. Like Jesus said, you either love the world or hate him or love him and hate the world. You know, it's one of the two. You know, you can't do both. And we're going to see Daniel face this test today, whether he's going to be biblically or politically correct. Now, the background, don't forget, Nebuchadnezzar is long dead. Belshazzar, his grandson, is now overseeing Babylon. But the, they're in the middle of a big siege, the Medes and Persians. <clears throat> and in the middle of this siege, Belshazzar mocks God by drinking out of the articles, the gold and the goblets and the articles out of the... He, he, he blasphemes the articles of the temple. And the hand appears and writes the finger of God, writes something. And the wise men can't understand what it means. Strike three. Remember we talked about strike three. And so he's stuck. Uh, he doesn't know what to do. So, who are you going to call? Not Ghostbusters. You're going to call Daniel. It's a scary thing, right? Scary ghost handwriting. Ghostbusters? Nope. Got to call Daniel. Daniel? And so, he calls Daniel, but he ends up hearing a sermon that he didn't want to hear because it was not politically correct, but it was very much B.C., biblically correct. Not P.C., but B.C., biblically correct. Let's pray. Father, we just pray for your mercy and grace to really... Bring your word alive and your Holy Spirit to speak right to us through your word and, and to, to convict us and to prepare us for what you're going to be doing in our hearts, in our churches, in our country, and in our world. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's pick it up here. I'm going to read the start chapter 5, verse 13, just to set the tone real quick. Uh, they didn't know what was, what this, these writings meant. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing to tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Big shock. Now, I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. Remember, untie the knots. Rubik's Cube blindfolded, remember that? Uh, if you can tell me, if you can tell this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Remember that? He couldn't make him the second highest because he was the second to Nabonidus, who's now in a dungeon. So that's why he can only offer him the third highest ruler. Once again, confirmation that God's word is true. Every historical detail down to the, the last little bit is completely true. And so he, <clears throat> so this is what he says to Daniel. But look at verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. 
Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Daniel's not impressed with the offer. Not impressed with this offer. He said, I w I've already been number two before. You're going to make me number three? I was number two with your grandfather when it was really a sum kingdom. Nobody was surrounding and besieging it. It was great. Uh, I was number two when you were still in your diapers, which... Uh, <laughs> By the way, uh, you're, you're still need changing. <laughs> Remember, he, his loins were loose, King James Version. He, he, Daniel probably could smell it. And so he says, keep your money, keep your rewards. They're worthless anyways. It's like paying somebody in Confederate money. That's like giving somebody stocks knowing that the, the stock market, their, their stock has already crashed. It's, it's worthless. Daniel knows it's as good as gone. Everything he offers him is, is worthless, right? And he, and he also saying, I won't be influenced by money. <clears throat> I won't be influenced by power, by some favor you're going to give me. That's not going to influence me. And this is a challenge for biblically correct pastors. If we're going to be biblically correct, we, we have to be willing to say things that are going to upset people because they're biblically correct. Not mean, don't, we don't say them the wrong way. It's not how we say, but what we say has to be biblical, even if we know it's going to offend somebody. We have to preach the truth. We have to, Bible, Ephesians 4 says, speak the truth in love. We have to speak the truth and we have to do it in love, but it has to be done. And so, so part of that, we have to be sometimes offend someone. We have to be able to admonish somebody, maybe somebody who's very influential, somebody we think is a big money giver, which we shouldn't know anyways as pastors, but sometimes you can't help it. They tell you, oh, I just gave this check, whatever. But anyway, I, I had a friend who was a, a pastor and he moved down south. And he and his wife, in between ministries, they were taking a little break. And they were going to a very large church down, down south, a uh, well-known church, large church. And his wife ended up leaving him for another guy. And he was heartbroken. He, he went to the pastor and he said, listen, this is what has happened. I need your help to intervene. We need counseling. I'll do anything. I'll go to counseling. I, I, I need you to intervene and to try to, you know, because she was still going to church and family, her family was still going to the church. Her parents were still there. And uh, he said, I, ju I just need your help to intervene and to bring us back together and to get us counseling and to get healing for our marriage. He said, oh, I really want to help you. And I know you're right. You're right. I really, you're right. She should come back to you. She's in sin and, and stuff. But I just can't get involved. He goes, what do you mean you can't get involved? You're our pastor now. And he goes, well, her parents are really big tithers. And they want me to keep my hands off of this. Leave it alone. They just want her to be happy. And so uh, even though they're Christians, they, just, they know it's wrong. But they just want her to be happy. Uh, happy in sin. Uh, go figure that one out. Go figure that one out, right? And uh, so, uh, so he said, so I, I'm not going to get involved. He goes, you're not going to help me? He goes, no, because I, we'll lose their money. They won't tithe anymore. Uh, that, is not, that is horrible. Shockingly horrible. You talk about biblically incorrect. That's it. It was crazy. First of all, he shouldn't even know how much money they give. That pastor should have no idea what they give. That's wrong. And he shouldn't, and it shouldn't have mattered anyway if he did find out. It shouldn't have mattered. We, as pastors, we, we have to be biblically correct. We can't be influenced. Like Daniel, we can't be influenced by the money or the favor or the power. Acts 20, and Acts 20, Paul talks about this when he's talking to the Ephesian elders. He's giving them his farewell address. And listen to what he says to them in Acts 20, verse 25. He says, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will see me again. 
He said, this is my last chance with you guys. Listen to what he says now. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Why? For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. He said, I'm innocent of your blood. I've never hesitated to pro proclaim the whole will of God. No matter what happens, you, whatever you do, I know I've done my job. And that is really important. The mark of a real prophet is he's not concerned about prophets. Got that? Uh, the mark of a real prophet is he's not concerned about P-R-O-F-I-T-S, prophets, right? It, God's word is not for sale. And then notice what he does next. He, then he goes on to talk to the king some more. And I want you to notice something. He, he doesn't say, O king, live forever, like he did in Daniel 6 and different places. Daniel 6, 21, when he's uh, talking, he says, O king, live forever. Why would he say this to Belshazzar? Because he knew he wasn't going to live forever. He knew what was coming. He saw it very clearly. Look at verse 18. Back to uh, here we go. Daniel 5, verse 18. O king, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor because of the high position he gave him. All the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heavens until he acknowledged the, that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets them over anyone he wishes. So he gives them a history lesson. He gives them a history lesson. He gives them a lesson in humility here. A lesson in humility. And he says Nebuchadnezzar learned a very important lesson. Nebuchadnezzar learned, uh, he actually made a children's book after this. It was King Nebuchadnezzar can moo. How about you? <laughs> Mr. Brown can moo. How about you? Uh, uh, the Dr. Zeus book. I think Zeus wrote that. Uh, but that, that is what Nebuchadnezzar learned how to move. Can you? Uh, can you be humble like he did? But Belshazzar didn't humble himself like King Nebuchadnezzar did. He instead blasphemed God by drinking out of the, the golden cups and everything. And then he says here, look at, he says, but you, his son, once again, we know it's a grandson, same word in Chaldean, but you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You knew this. This is history. Everybody knew it in, in Babylon. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had his, you had the goblets from his temple brought to you, temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he has sent the hand that wrote the inscription. He said, you know better. You you knew, but you ignored the history lessons. You ignored it. This was a national proclamation that King Nebuchadnezzar had made. And and you ignored his newfound faith, your grandfather's newfound faith. You, you uh, ignored his new life, his changed life. Your adopted father also took on this faith. Remember, we saw Nabonidus also, we saw last we uh, adopted this faith. Remember that last time? His his prayer. But you ignored all this and you, you 
committed three big no-nos, three Ds, disobeyed, defied, and dumb. This is what he ends up telling him. You disobeyed, you sinned. You, this, what you did to God here and his goblets, this was, wasn't ignorance, it was pride. You know better. You knew Nebuchadnezzar's story. Now you know you're under siege, but you still have this big head. It's unbelievable. You defied God, disobeyed, and then you defied God. You got out these cups to mock him. But the same hand that wrote those words on that wall right in front of you, this movie screen like wall in front of you, he also, that, so, that same hand holds your life in his hands. Hebrews 10.31, for it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Falling into the hands of the living God. You have fallen into his hands and on top of that, you're dumb. Why? Because you worship idols. You worship idols, you're just dumb. And imagine the suspense. Daniel is speaking before the... Congress, the king, the concubines, the, 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 the girls are all there, you know, drunken. Remember I talked about this drunken orgy. They're all there frozen, terrified, and he confronts, he's confronting the politicians. He's confronting the king. He's confronting Hollywood celebrities. They're all there, piled in there, doing their thing, but they're terrified now. And, and, and he, he, he confronts them. Imagine the suspense with this intense confrontation. That would be like getting in front of the president now and, and the, the Supreme Court and the Congress and confronting them about abortion and, and the judgment that's going to come. Uh, that would be like doing that to a president today. And the USA today is mocking God also. It's also mocking God. This is a picture. Babylon is a picture of the USA today. It's, that's what it's a picture of. And it's in danger of judgment. I'm afraid we're past the danger. I, I'm afraid we've already crossed the line. We talked about this Daniel Revelation. There's not even a hint of the United States. We can find a lot of other countries there. We can find the European Union. We can find Russia. We can find all these different countries. We find Israel, front and center. Uh, but, but we cannot find the USA. No hint of it. So I'm, I'm afraid that we may have already crossed the line. But it goes for the church, too. Forget the country. It starts with the church. There's no re change, changing this country. There's no hope for this country until the church wakes up, until the church is the church. And right now it's very, very scary what we see in the church in the United States today. In fact, here's an article called Stray Pastors by Gene Edward Veith. He's talking about, uh, he's talking about a Barna research. George Barna did this special research a couple years back. And he says here that only half of America's ministers hold to a biblical world view. Only half. But the worst part is that many who do hold to a world view are not imparting it to their churches. They're afraid to offend people. They want them to keep coming. They want to keep giving money. They want to keep counting the noses and the nickels. And so because of that, they, they, they are not preaching biblically. They're being false teachers, functional false teachers, by not preaching the full word of God. And they're ending up, instead of disciples of Jesus Christ, they're ending up with these shallow believers, right? And listen, this is unbelievable. It says, uh, he says here, the rise, uh, let's see, rise of out of out and out unbelief among Americans who consider themselves to be born again is shocking. Now we know at least part of the reason, 49% of we're going to just use Protestants there. We're not going to pick on the Catholics, just the Protestants here. 49% uh, reject biblical beliefs completely. 51% accept it. The, the, the core beliefs that they reject is absolute moral truth based on the Bible. Biblical teachings 
are accurate. Jesus was without sin. Satan literally exists. God is omnipotent and omniscient. Salvation is by grace alone. Christians have a personal responsibility to evangelize. That's just the bare bones. Listen, you add a couple other critical pieces. The Trinity, the deity of Christ are also, uh, are also essential for real salvation. But any, any minister, whatever the denomination this guy says, should be able to agree on these basics. And yet only 51% of Protestant pastors hold to these. That is disgusting. Southern Baptists had the most, 71%. Woohoo! We're supposed to celebrate 71%? That's pathetic. That should be the worst, but it's the best. Uh, it says here, Methodists were the fewest. Shocking. United, United Methodists, 27%. It's probably dropped since this study came out. Uh, surprising, discouraging. 44% of Charismatics or Pentecostal churches hold to this. Shocking again. Mainline churches, only 28% hold to a biblical view. Um, of black churches, pastors of black churches, only 35% have a biblical world view. That explains a lot. That explains a lot. Uh, explains a lot. So, uh, so, so many holding to these, um, in, the, in the black churches, holding to these non Biblical beliefs, shocking. It's not just the black, white churches. We see it just as bad, even worse than the Methodists. But that, that is, that is scary. That explains a lot. Uh, when I talk to a lot of my friends who are, call themselves Christian in the black, this is what I'm saying, the black churches, they don't have any problem with abortion. I'm like, are you kidding me? Abortion is genocide for the blacks. That's what, that's what the, the whites have used for years to try to get the African American people to kill their babies so there aren't so many African-Americans. Why would you accept it? Because they have, their pastors are not preaching the truth. And I'm just using one lightning rod. Abortion's just one thing. That's the lightning rod. Think of the iceberg. At the, that's the tip of the iceberg. Think about underneath what they're not teaching. That explains a lot. The black te- pastors are not preaching the word of God. So many of them are not preaching. Not all. I know some godly, godly great men. Tony Evans, who's better than he is? Who's stronger than he is? Who's a a more faithful preacher than he is? But so many are not like Tony Evans, okay? Uh, Also says denominations that ordain women, only 15% of female pastors hold to a biblical worldview. 15%. Well, that makes sense because the Bible says women can't be pastors. And not over men, they can be pastors of Christianette or youth or children or something or women ministries. They can do all they want, but they can't be pastors over a church, men and women mix. The Bible says it very clearly and Paul traces it to creation itself. So it only makes sense. They're already disregarding the word to even become a pastor. Obviously, they don't really believe the Bible, right? All right, here I go. I'm getting warmed up. Uh, also, uh, those who attend seminary are less likely to have a biblical worldview. That is sad. Uh, that means the seminaries aren't doing their job. 45%. Those who don't at- attend a seminary, 59%. Mmm, I'm not going to say anything, but maybe we're better off. Uh, the sheep are hungry and are not fed. Many have already starved to death. The, the bad pastors... Uh, they're the bad pastors, but it's even worse for church members. Now get this. Now I'm going to hammer it. Just 7% of American Protestants overall agree with the biblical tenets on that list. Just 7% of Protestants. Are you kidding me? So much for the Protestant Reformation. Looks like we've reversed it, huh? And then the born again, only nine, only 10% of born again Christians. That means nine out of 10 so-called born again Christians may not be born again. 
All right, we'll just leave it there. Uh, acquiring a biblical worldview is a long-term process that requires, requires lots of purposeful activity, teaching, prayer, conversation, accountability, so on. If, if the, but if the 51%, he ends this with, if the 51% would just stay firm and would do their jobs, think of the impact it would have. Think of if instead of 10% of born again, if 50% had a biblical worldview. Think of the transformation in this country. But we're not seeing that. We're not seeing that. That's what we're not seeing. Uh, shameful. Shameful. Uh, so, we need pastors and we need Christians who are willing to be biblically correct instead of politically correct. Are we willing to be a Daniel? Christians, are you willing to be a Daniel? To speak the truth in love. Pastors, are we willing to speak the truth in love? Now, I uh, remember, you know, there's a song about Daniel, Dare to be a Daniel. I was challenged. Uh, my good friends, Todd and Barb Young, challenged me, said, boy, if you would just sing that song, we would really think oh, even more of you than we already do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it on video. Here we go. I'm just going to do the chorus. So come on, sing it with me, Todd and Barb and everybody. Here it goes. <laughs> dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Come on, help me now. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. There's a lot more to it. Look it up. It's a great song. But uh, but that will we dare to be Daniel? Will we dare to be biblically correct instead of uh, politically correct? Now let's really let. Now we're going to see Daniel is willing to be biblically correct. Now we're going to see him really let Belshazzar have it here. I'm just getting warmed up here. The wise guys couldn't understand the writing. Huh, shocker. Why are they calling the wise guys? I don't know. They should be called dumb and dumber by now, right? I said that before. Uh, maybe they're drunk. They've been drinking there. Maybe they're under pressure. It's like the game show and somebody's on a game show and they mess up a really easy answer on Family Feud or something. Uh, maybe they're under that pressure, but they cannot understand this. So, uh, let's see. We'll pick it up with verse 25. This is the, th the inscription that was written, Many, many tekel parson. This is what the words mean. You know, here's Daniel doing what the wise men couldn't do. This is what the words mean. Many. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So he, first of all, comes, the very first writing is many, many, which, uh, which means numbered. It means numbered. Your days are numbered. And he's given twice for emphasis. Whenever God gives a dream or a second thing, it means emphasis. It means it's going to really happen. Genesis 41.32. In Genesis 41.32, when Pharaoh had the dream and Joseph interprets it, listen to what he says. Joseph said, The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided and God will do it soon. He's, so by writing many, many twice, he's saying, Your days are numbered. It's over. He's going to do it soon. Okay? All of our days are numbered. All of our days are numbered. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, uh, I'm going to look it up. Psalm, uh, uh, Psalm 90 verse 12 where it says, Just a minute. Ah, Teach us to number our days the right that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Did I get it right? Yes. Teach us to number our days the right that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 
numbering our days, right? Knowing how many days, knowing you know when when our end is 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 gonna be there. No, understanding that is very very important. All of our days are numbered. Are we ready? Have you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you ever given your life to Him? Say, I'll put it off. I'll wait. You, you don't know the number. We don't know the number. Are we ready? And then he says, not only many, but he says tekel, which means weighed. And he says, it's been weighed on the scales and found deficient. It doesn't, <laughs> the weight is off. It's deficient. God has a holy standard, a holy standard for his weights. And you are deficient morally. We all are. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of God's standard, of his glory. Every one of us. Parson, divided. This word is very, very close to Persians. It's actually a pun. God used a pun, which David, uh, Daniel brought out. And, it, and it, uh, it's a pun. It's spelled out very clearly that it's going to be divided. It's going to be divided between the the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians. So he's given them, they are, your days are numbered, you, you're found deficient, and now you're going to be divided between the, the Medes and Persians. And he even uses a word that's close to the Persians to, to give that hint there. Although he should have been able to figure it out. They're surrounded the city, right? And so he, uh, verse 29, interestingly, he, Belshazzar still goes through with this farce. He says in verse 29, Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Woohoo! Alright? Uh, first of all, I'm surprised he didn't kill Daniel, right? But he's probably afraid of, of uh, Daniel's God. Maybe he hoped to appease the wrath of Daniel's God. But these these prizes that he gave him were very short-lived. A couple hours, just like all the world's big money prizes. I love to give out big money prizes for all the competitions and fun stuff we do. But but they're all short-lived. This is very short-lived. All the world's big money prizes that we get so excited about are very, very short-lived. Okay, And it's ironic that the last official act in Babylon's history, the last official act was to, uh, to honor a Jewish exile. Daniel, who just pronounced their judgment. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? The last act is to honor a Jewish exile who predicted its fall. And even while Daniel is talking, the prophecy is being fulfilled. Babylon is being judged. Look at verse 30 and 31. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. At the age of 62. That happened that very, very night, right after Daniel said it. Herodotus, the historian, writes this, which adds a lot more to what we even know from the Bible. The Bible gives the, 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 the most important part, but listen to the history that Herodotus writes about. He says, Cyrus came, marched against Babylon. A battle was fought. He defeated the Babylonians. We know all this. Uh, they were defeated. They withdrew into the defenses, shut themselves up, but they had no, they were, they made, says he, I'm going to read it. They made light of his siege, having laid a storage provision of many years, 20 years. We already knew that. Cyrus was now reduced to great perplexity. He didn't know how to get in. He made no progress. Uh, he couldn't figure out how to get in. And he said, could somebody come up with a, a, an idea? And they finally came up with an idea. He gave orders to march into a town by the bed of the stream. And as soon as the water was shallow enough, they drew off, uh, 
they, they took the water, basically what they did is they made a canal and they took the Euphrates River and redirected it into a basin, like a kind of a, like a mini lake that they had prepared. <clears throat> and when they did that, it made the water go down coming into Babylon, go down enough that the guys could come up to their thighs. The water was only thigh high. And usually it was very deep and they had these huge metal bars that would came into the, the wall and the water you couldn't get through. You might be able to swim one guy through maybe, but this time they, they, they could walk in and that's how they could always have the water they needed. They had the Euphrates River flowing through Babylon but and these huge metal bars, but by draining the water down and getting it down, they were able to just sneak the whole army in through the metal bars and come in and invade them. And uh, let's see, I'm going to read it here. Had they noticed, had the Babylonians noticed their danger, they wouldn't have let them come in. They would have set a trap and killed them all. It would have been easy to keep them out, he says. They could have caught them in a trap. But as it were, <clears throat> the Persians came on them by surprise and took the city. Owing to the vast side of the city, the inhabitants of the other parts didn't even know it was conquered. This is how massive. It's 12 times the size of modern-day London. Huge. They didn't even know. Half of the city was conquered and the other half didn't even know it. That's how brutal. Finally, they could see some flames and smoke and they, they kind of got the hint. They knew nothing of what had happened because they were engaged in a festival, continued dancing and reveling until they learned the capture, but too late. Such then was the circumstances of the first taking of Babylon. Hadn't been taken over a thousand years, right? Uh, crazy. They were so busy partying, they missed it. Even the king, Belshazzar, went right, apparently went right back to his party, or he would have sent the soldiers out in the wall and prepared, but no, he he just kept on partying, or he was too drunk to do anything about it. We're not sure. But the bottom line is, it, it's crazy. And Daniel wasn't the first to prophesy about its fall. There's other amazing prophecies that were leading up to it in Isaiah and Jeremiah. I'm going to read a couple on Isaiah real quickly here. And keep in mind what we just read in Herodotus and uh what we he said, listen to this, Isaiah 13, a whole chapter about the fall of Babylon. Isaiah 13, verse 17. See, I will stir up against them the Medes, who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. 21-2, 21-2, another whole chapter on the overthrow of Babylon, a prophecy against Babylon by the Isaiah, by Isaiah the prophet. A dire vision, Isaiah 21-2, a dire vision has been shown to me. The traitor, the traitor betrays, the looters take loot. Elam attack, media lay siege, I will bring to an end all the groaning she caused. Then in verse 9 it says, look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses, and he gives back the answer, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. All the images of its gods lie shattered on the ground. Remember, they were just toasting to their gods, their idols, right that night, and they were going to be completely destroyed. You want to read Jeremiah 51? He tells the same thing. Woo! How does this apply to the USA today? How does it apply to us? In many ways, the USA and Babylon are very similar. The parallels are scary, eerie and scary. 
we are also oblivious to a coming judgment. We are, we better wake up and we better sober up, sober up, just like Jebel Belshazzar. We better sober up quickly. We think we're secure. We're partying and, and, and partying behind our oceans and uh, the oceans that surround us and the, the walls. We're even building another wall, uh, but to keep people out, but uh, it's not going to keep us safe either. Uh, the, we're, we think we're safe with our military might, yet we are defenseless against God's hand, as was exposed in 9-11. I mean, it hits the World Trade Center, which is our economic symbol. It hit the Pentagon, which is our military symbol. That was God's wake-up call. That was God's warning sign. And now we have the coronavirus here. The hand of God can reach, we can see with the coronavirus, the hand of God can reach anyone, anywhere, at any time. He can bring any nation to its knees and that's what he's done. Well, we, we better get on our knees because he's brought us to our knees. Daniel's three warnings are for us today. The three warnings are for us today. Numbered. Our days could very well be numbered. In fact, in Jeremiah 18, in Jeremiah, <clears throat> let me turn to it, in Jeremiah 18, 7 to 10, where it says this. Now this is to the USA today. Numbered. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. Now here we go. And if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted. A couple hundred years ago we were. And if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. We are, our nays are numbered if we do not repent and relent. And God doesn't relent. Wade, uh, our same warning with Wade. We do not meet God's holy standards. We're not even trying to meet God's holy standards anymore. We've completely rejected His word and His law. Divided. We are, has a nation ever been more divided than we are? The United States of America? I don't think so. We are the divided states of America. The divided states of America. We are in a cultural civil war that could break out into a real civil war anytime and division is one of the signs of God's judgment. We're not going to be judged for what we're doing. We are, the, the, the division is the judgment. That's one of the signs of God's judgment. Do you remember the USSR? Those who've been alive long enough know what I'm talking about. The mighty USSR that was starting to even dwarf the United States and, and Europe and it was unbelievable and yet look what happened to them. Completely divided up, cut up. God can divide us at any time, any time. We had better watch out. In fact, George Mason, uh, uh, Virginia delegate, George Mason, 1987 Constitutional Convention. This is what he says. Now pay attention. By an invisible chain of causes and effects, providence punishes national sins by national calamities. I'm going to read that one more time. Providence punishes national sins by national calamities. And we have got to be able to see what God is doing in our country today, right? Let's connect the dots. Let's connect the dots. Abortion alone is enough to ensure our complete judgment. Connect the dots. If you haven't had a chance to listen to my sermon, connect the dots to the coronavirus and beyond. Uh, go listen to it on the regular site, a regular podcast. That alone is enough. That alone is enough. You put everything else on top of it, we are... <clears throat> we are in trouble. We are standing on the edge of a cliff in an earthquake. We are in trouble. And uh, Hal Lindsey, years ago, uh, 2003, wrote this. I'm just going to read you some highlights. It's called Repent or Perish. I'm going to read you some of the highlights from his, his writing. Back, this is, I read this back in 2003. He says, 
52 of the original 55 signers of the Declaration of Independence were Orthodox, deeply committed Christians. The other three all believed the Bible is divine truth, the God of Scripture, and His personal intervention. They all believed in God, but 52 were Christian. The same Congress that formed the American... It is the same Congress that formed the American Bible Society. Yep, that Congress formed the American Bible Society. Immediately after create, creating the Declaration of Independence, the Congregate Continental Congress voted to purchase and import 20,000 copies of Scripture for the people of the nation. Our Congress did that right after the Declaration of Independence. Patrick Henry, who said, give me liberty or give me death, said this. He said, and this has been erased from the, most of this has been erased from the history books. Our kids don't learn it anymore. He says this, it cannot be emphasized too strongly. This is a 1776 he wrote this. It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that the great nation, this great nation was founded not by religionists, not by religious people, but by Christians. Not on religious, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. For that reason alone, people of other faiths have been afforded freedom of worship here. He said, we are not a religious country, we are a Christian country, and that's why we've given shelter to the other religions here. Not so that they could establish their religions and, and, and push us to the side, but that's why we've given them that, that shelter. Because we're Christians, he's saying. George Washington, who everybody knows wasn't really a Christian, right? Well, let's read it. Let's read his words. Farewell speech, 1796. It is impossible to govern the world without God and the Bible. Of all the dispositions and habits that lead to political prosperity, our religion and morality are the indispensable supporters. Let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. It can't. Uh, that's me. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that our national morality can prevail in the exclusion of religious principle. That's oh, religious. You know, he's he believes in some kind of God, right? Oh, here we go. His pastoral prayer book. This is what he says: "O oh, eternal and everlasting God, direct my thoughts, words, and work. Wash away my sins in the immaculate blood of the Lamb." And purge my heart by the Holy Spirit. Daily frame me more and more in the likeness of thy son, Jesus Christ. That living in thy fear and dying in thy favor, I may be in thy appointed time obtain the resurrection of the justified unto eternal life. Bless, O Lord, the whole race of mankind and let the world be filled with the knowledge of thee and thy son, Jesus Christ. Okay, George, we hear you loud and clear. No matter what the history books say, John, the new history books say, John Adams, our second president, who also served as the chairman of the American Bible Society, in address to military leaders said, We have no government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and true religion. Our constitution was made only for the moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. First Supreme Court Justice John Jay said we should select as our national leaders and to, in order to preserve our nation, we must select Christians. Providence has given to our people the choice of the rulers and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Kelvin Coolidge, 30th president, 
The foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in our country. We've crossed the line on that one. 1782, the United States Congress voted this resolution. The Congress of the United States recommends and approves the Bible for use in all schools. Schools. Uh, William McGuffey, William Holmes McGuffey, the author of the McGuffey Reader, which was used for over 100 years in the public schools with over 125 million copies sold until it was stopped in 1963. He says this, President Lincoln called him the schoolmaster of the nation, Mr. McGuffey. The Christian religion, this is what he says, the Christian religion is the religion of our country. I've drawn for, conspicuously from the sacred scriptures, from all these extracts from the Bible, I make no apology. No apology. He, this is also in the McGuffey Reader. Listen to this. Oh, this is a warning, prophetic warning. This is in the McGuffey Reader in the public schools. If you can induce a community to doubt the genuineness and authenticity of the scriptures, to question the reality and obligations of religion, to hesitate undeciding whether there be any such thing as vice or virtue, whether there be an eternal state of retribution beyond the grave, or whether there exists any such being as God, you have broken down the barriers of moral virtue and hoisted the floodgates of immorality and crime. Every bond that holds society together would be ruptured. Where are we, Mr. McGuffey? In heaven watching, we've been ruptured. We can see that. Unbelievable. Of the first 108 universities founded in America, 106 were definitely Christian, including Harvard, 1636. Uh, on and on and on. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to just read a few more here. Uh, you don't get this history anywhere else. No, we're at school. However, in 1947, there was a radical change from the Supreme Court, ignoring every precedent of the Supreme Court rulings of the past 160 years. They ruled to affirm a wall of separation between church and state in public classroom in the coming years. This led to removing prayer from the public schools in 1962. Separation of church and state is not in the Constitution. It's not there. All right? Uh, it's not there. And, and the, the point of separation of church and state, which was a president writing to a church, was to assure him that the, the, the state would not interfere with the church. It was never meant to separate the church from being part of the state. Christianity is, well, you can see Christianity is this country. It is this country. And when it stops being this country, we are finished because democracy cannot survive. The Constitution was made for Christians. Only Christians can keep this country together. If we have left that faith, which we have, we're doomed. If we don't come back, we're doomed. If the church doesn't bring us back, we're doomed. Listen to this here. The Supreme Court in 1963 then ruled that Bible reading was outlawed as outlawed as unconstitutional in the public school system. This is their justification. If portions of the New Testament were read without explanation, they could and have been psychologically harmful to children. Oh, oh, I, I got to meditate on that one. Uh, uh, 1965, the courts denied as unconstitutional the right of the student in the public school cafeteria to bow his head and pray audibly to his God. You can do it quietly in your head, but you can't say it audibly or you're in trouble. Uh, the, the, the thought police are coming. Uh, 19, uh, 1980, 
Stone versus Grant outlawed the Ten Commandments in our public schools. The Ten Commandments. Well, they're so destructive, those Ten Commandments. Uh, if the posted copies of the Ten Commandments were to have any effect at all, it would be to induce school children to read them. And if they read them, meditated on them, and perhaps venerated and obeyed them, this is not a permissible objective. No, we'd rather have kids running around with guns and shooting each other in the schools. We'd rather have them giving drugs to each other and committing suicide with each other. That's what we'd rather have because, because the Ten Commandments is so dangerous. All right? uh, James Madison, the primary author of the Constitution in the United States, said this, We have staked the whole future of our new nation, not upon the power of the government, far from it. We have staked the future of all our political constitutions upon the capacity of each of ourselves to govern ourselves according to the moral principles of the Ten Commandments. They just threw out the whole purpose, the whole foundation of our country. Most of what I'm reading here has been erased from the history books, the textbooks. The revisionists have rewritten history to remove the truth about our country's Christian roots. America stands at the crossroads of its existence but the day of grace is not going to last long. This was 2003. Here we are 17 years later and we are sliding down the edge of the cliff. It, it, it's unbelievable. This, what we've seen since then, what I've seen since I was a kid, I tell my kids all the time, when I was born, I tell them what the country was like and they can't even imagine it. It's hard to even imagine what the country was once like, what, what was legal and illegal. I remember when pornography was illegal. I remember when abortion was illegal. I remember when homosexuality was illegal. And I remember saying when they, they made it legal, I remember saying the day will come that they're gonna, they're gonna legalize pedophilia, sex with children. Everybody's, oh no, no, that, now you're getting disgusting. And look what's happening. They're pushing for it now. Intergenerational intimacy. They're already pressuring the American Psychiatric Association to make it, to take away the stigma. They're pushing for it. It's coming, people. Pay attention here. Uh, and, and I tell them what it was like, and it's hard to even imagine. And <clears throat> we, we killing babies by the mil 60 million and cutting them up and selling their body parts and harvesting their stem cells? Are you kidding me? The killing babies is what the Nazis did. I remember as a kid, they always talked about the Nazi atrocities, you know, and when, how we sat in judgment over the Nazis at the Nuremberg trial, Nuremberg trials. And now, now we are the Nazis. We're killing the babies and harvesting their body parts. And we have raised up a whole generation of Nazi youth that are brainwashed, that see no problem with it, that not only see no problem with it, they think it's a good thing. We have raised up, we are the Nazis. The handwriting is on the wall. It could get very crazy very soon for the USA today, just like it did for Babylon. It could be over like that. God could, could flip the switch. He could pull, pull out his hand and, you know, boom, 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 write it, write it down. But notice, this is scary. This is sad. We are very likely are going to face a serious judgment in this country. But notice, Daniel lived through Israel's judgment. They did all this and they were judged. They went into captivity for seven years, 70 years. He lived through that. He was in Babylon. He lived through that. Babylon's going to fall. He's going to make it through that. Wait till we see next chapter. He, he keeps landing on his feet. He did not panic. Disasters God's judgment on the world, God's discipline on his people, on his church, they do, that does not shake the true children of God. It doesn't shake us. Are we 
like Daniel? Are we dare to be a Daniel? Are we being faithful? Are we ready? Matthew 5, 13 to 16, are we being salt and light? Right where we are, no matter how bad it's rotting, no matter how dark it gets, are we still light? Are we still salt, salting and, and preserving? And are we still doing that? You are, the, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Are we still doing that? 1 Corinthians 7. And 1 Corinthians 7 gives a, a real perspective when it says in verse 29, listen to this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. This is Paul talking. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. It doesn't mean we can't have people, we can't have wives, can't have family, can't have some things. But we can't let anything or anyone take our focus off of doing what God has called us to do. Doing our number one job and that's being salt and light. Being salt and light. Very, very important in the short time that we have left. And maybe I'm talking to you today, you're hearing this, and you're not even a Christian yet. Are you ready? Maybe you are realizing for the first time hearing this that your life is not up to God's standard. None of us is. That's why Jesus came. None of us. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We have all sinned. We cannot approach a holy God. We cannot spend eternity in heaven. We can't even talk to him here while we're on earth. We can't because he is holy and our sin blocks that. But God made a way by sending his son Jesus to die on that cross, to give his blood, to to give his life in our place. And then he came back from the dead to prove he was the son of God and prove he can give us new life. God did that and now we can receive a gift of life. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God. We can have a gift. We can, you can't earn it. What do you do with a gift? Do you pay for it? No, you can't. It's no longer a gift. You cannot earn. You can only receive this gift. There's not one little teeny thing you can do to earn God's favor, to earn God's forgiveness, to earn this life here and forever with God. You cannot. You can only receive that gift, the gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing any religious person can do for you. There's nothing any church can do for you. It's just, it's between us and God, and there's only one way, and this is by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. It's by giving our life to Jesus Christ. I just did Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 10.9 and 10, that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For it's with our heart that we believe and are justified, and it's with our mouth that we confess and are saved. You have to believe in Jesus to be justified, just as if I never sinned. Have you ever believed in Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would speak to each heart who's hearing this, whether they're hearing this the day after I preach this or they're hearing this a year from now or 10 years from now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak. I pray that you would speak to those who have never put their faith in Jesus, who have never received life, who are still in their sin. And if that's you that I'm talking about right now, you can have life right now. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with a heart you believe and are justified. And it is with a mouth that you confess and are saved. Will you believe in Jesus? Will you confess him as your Savior, as your Lord? The simple prayer of faith. God, I know my sin separates me from you. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. I know that. I believe it. I'm hearing what your Holy Spirit is saying to me through your word today. I repent. I repent. I ask you to forgive me. Because I'm putting my faith in Jesus. I'm giving my life to him. I'm confessing him as Lord. If you have prayed that prayer of faith, something amazing has happened. The Spirit of Jesus Christ has come into you. You've become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You will never be the same again. You have a brand new life here right now for whatever time we have left, whatever time you left, left, you have a brand new life, a brand new purpose, a brand new peace, a brand new joy that will go from here all the way into eternity forever with God someday. Have you prayed that prayer of faith? If you have, I want to encourage you to tell somebody. Find the 10%. The 10% of the people that are really following Jesus Christ, find one of them and tell them. Maybe it's a family member or a friend that you know or a church that you know. Tell them because they're going to be excited for you and help you to grow. And if you need someone to tell, you can't find anybody, email me. I'll get connected with you and, and be excited for you and help you find a way to grow, some people to grow with. NHCC at Comcast.net. For the rest of us who have already put our faith in Christ, I'm not talking about the 90% wishy-washy, lukewarm. I'm talking about the 10%. You know you've really put your faith in Jesus Christ. You've given your life to Jesus Christ. How is the Holy Spirit speaking to us? How is he speaking to us? Yeah, it looks horrible. We got the coronavirus. We got all kinds of crazy things happening. We got locusts. We got fires. We got possibility of war every day. We're in a couple of wars. But yet, we don't have to freak out because we are Daniels. Will you dare to be a Daniel? We say, God, I dare to be a Daniel. Even if I have to stand alone, I dare to be a Daniel. I want to be salt. I want to be light right where you've put me. Right where you've put me. Father, I pray that each person, each one of us would take a courageous stand like Daniel, knowing that you're going to stand with us just like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, we know Jesus will stand with us. Even as we come to this end times that's coming very, very quickly, we know that you're going to stand with us no matter what happens. You're going to stand with us and this time of suffering is going to be short compared to eternity for our light momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't miss next. We're on to Daniel 6. It only gets better. God bless.